Well, beloved, after a, a long break, we're going to return now to the Apostles Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And as has been my tradition as we've moved through this letter, who, by a show of hands, has, since we've been studying Philippians, read through it at least once? Keep your hand up. Who has read through it at least once? Okay, excellent. How many chapters is it? Exactly. Four. All right. Anybody read through it this last week, by chance? Yes, Senia? Okay. Good. So let me encourage you. If you can, it's four chapters. Maybe 15 to 30, maybe 30 minutes read time, maybe. Maybe. And uh, maybe try to make it, I, I would encourage you to make it a habit to read through it each week as we're in it. And uh, just be helpful for you and for your growth and for your following along. So before we pick up where we left off, I want to mention a few things. And all or most of what I'm going to say uh, is probably review. But I want to kind of bring us back up to speed, if you will, as we jump back in. So at the time of this letter's writing, Paul was imprisoned in Rome while waiting for his trial a trial at which Paul faced the real possibility that the judgment would be execution. However, Paul was confident that he would eventually be set free. Uh, Why? Well, because he was certain God had more work for him to do. And he knew that God was sovereign over all things. And because of that, he believed he, he would be released and that the judgment would go in his favor. Now, the church in Philippi, a church that Paul had planted about 10 years prior to this imprisonment in Rome, because he will be imprisoned in Rome again, he will be released, and he will find himself in prison in Rome again, but that one he won't uh, be set free from. He'll die there in his second imprisonment. But in this imprisonment, uh, the church of Philippi became aware that Paul was there in Rome and basically under house arrest. And in response, they chose Epaphroditus, a member of the church at Philippi, to make the long journey to Rome. At minimum, at minimum six weeks, but it could be longer. It could be several months, just depending on the conditions and the route that was traveled. They chose Epaphroditus to make that journey to Rome from Philippi, in order to check in on Paul, to see how he was doing, to deliver a monetary gift from the church to him, and to minister to Paul on their behalf. The church in Philippi was by all measures a good church and had, since their inception, been loyal partners with Paul in advancing the gospel, both by being faithful witnesses to Christ in Philippi, where they were, and by supporting Paul in various ways, financially, through prayer, human resources, by supporting him in those ways, in his missionary efforts to spread the gospel in other cities and plant additional churches, as he had in Philippi. 
Paul, sometime after Epaphroditus' arrival, wrote the letter we call Philippians to his dear Christian brothers and sisters in Philippi so that he, among other things, might update them on his present circumstances because they wanted to know, thank them for all of their support, including the special monetary gift that they had sent him via Epaphroditus, and and address certain matters concerning the church that were no doubt made known to Paul by Epaphroditus when he arrived. One of those matters was in regard to unity. Paul, in this letter, addresses the problem of disunity, not only in his direct appeal to two specific women in the church who were in conflict, as we will see when we get to chapter 4, but also, as we have already covered, in his denunciations of envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, vain conceit, grumbling, and arguing, which are all uh, work to encourage disunity and break up unity and destroy unity, and in his challenges to them to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, to be one in spirit and of one mind, to in humility count others more significant than yourselves, to look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others, and for them to have, adopt the same attitude seen in their Lord Jesus Christ, who, as Paul says in Philippians 2.6, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the church's perfect model of a humble servant. So now, picking up where we left off in Philippians, following a number of exhortations and Christ's example of humble service, here in verses 19 through 30 of chapter 2, Paul slightly shifts gears and discusses his travel plans for Timothy and Epaphroditus, both of whom are with Paul in Rome at this time. However, there is more to this section than just some travel details. Both Timothy and Epaphroditus appear in this section as, and I'm quoting now from another scholar, godly examples of the way the Philippians should imitate Christ, which is what Paul was just talking about. Another states that this section is meant to instruct by pointing to Timothy and Epaphroditus as models of a selfless attitude that Paul wants the community to follow. 
Very much so in light of the issues of disunity that are currently present in this precious body. In addition, one scholar said this, the function of chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, which is what we're going to be looking at, is not merely to inform the Philippians about Timothy and Epaphroditus, but rather to set them forth as godly examples and illustrate the manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here's a sample of titles that Bible commentators give to this section that speaks of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Quote, Christ-like examples. Another, Christ-like servants. Another, model Christians. Okay? In light of all that, I chose to simply title this message, <laughs> Learning from Timothy and Epaphroditus which is what I hope we do <laughs> this morning. With that introduction, let's read the text. If you're not already there, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, and we're going all the way to verse 30. The Apostle Paul wrote this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. Verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Okay. So that's our text. And maybe some of you are thinking, that's too much for him to try to deal with. On a Sunday morning, he has a hard time getting through one or two verses. So let me relieve your, your concerns, your fears, maybe. I'm not going to deal with every statement that's found in this section. But instead, I'm primarily focusing in on certain statements made by Paul in regard to Timothy and Epaphroditus. Okay? My hope is that we, as I said before, might learn from the example of these Christ-like servants and as Christians be further instructed in what we, by God's transforming grace, can and should be as those who follow after Christ. 
and are called by Christ to be conformed to his likeness and have been redeemed by God for that very purpose. Okay? You with me? So if I don't answer all your questions, that's okay. Study. Study them out, okay? I'm going to focus specifically on a few statements. Let's talk about Timothy because that's who Paul talks about first. Timothy was, of course, well-known by the church in Philippi. Timothy served with Paul when the church was first established. We read about that in Acts 16. And Timothy made subsequent visits to the church, as we find in Acts 19 and Acts 20. So there's familiarity. They know Timothy. Timothy knows them. Timothy was there at their inception. Okay, so there's relationship. Paul stated that he hoped to send Timothy to them soon and goes on to say in verse 23 that he will send him just as soon as he sees how it will go with him. That statement, how it will go with him, is likely a reference to the outcome of his case or the verdict of his trial, which he believes he will know soon and which is, of course, of great interest to the church in Philippi who care deeply about Paul and also care deeply about the gospel work that he is doing. Paul then, in verse 20, in regard to his decision to send Timothy to them soon, that is, as soon as he sees how it will go with him, makes the statement that he has no one. You see it there in verse 20? That he has no one like him. Now just note, he doesn't say that he doesn't know anyone like him. He says he, he has no one like him. And the him is Timothy. He has no one like Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for their welfare. So I take this statement to mean that Paul is thinking about those, most naturally, this is how you would take it, that he is thinking about those available to him there in Rome at the time that he's writing this letter, rather than Everyone that Paul knows, okay? Because then basically he's saying, There's, I know no one like Timothy. I mean, nobody, no one measures up to him as far as being genuinely concerned for the welfare of the church. But rather, I have no one like Timothy here, presently, with me, that will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Bible scholars point out that the statement translated, and this is, I'm just pointing this out because if you do reading, you'll, you'll see there's a difference of opinion here. But Bible scholars point out that the statement translated in the ESV as, I have no one like him, is literally, and this is true, I have no one of equal soul. It's literally what it says. I have no one of equal soul. What does that mean? Well, I have no one similarly minded or of... Similar interest and attitude, if you will. That is with regard or in the matter of having genuine concern for the church. 
at Philippi. And that statement could be understood to be a comparison between Timothy and Paul. So then in regard to Timothy, Paul would be saying, I have no one else here in Rome that is as similarly minded as me in the matter of having a genuine interest in your welfare. That certainly could be what Paul means. Or it could be understood as a comparison between Timothy and others there in Rome that Paul might have sent to Philippi as his messenger and minister. So then in that sense, it would be, I have no one among them that is like Timothy or of equal soul with Timothy in regard to having a genuine interest in your welfare. You with me? And I don't know which, I don't know which to decide. I, I can't. And, and honestly, it doesn't make a, a gigantic difference because in the end, Timothy is like Paul. Paul has mentored him. And so whether it's a comparison between him and Paul or he's comparing it with the other guys, either way, Timothy is like Paul. I already know that to be true. Timothy is a, a very, probably the closest companion that Paul has and fellow minister for the gospel. One of his best for sure. Okay? I would, ex- I would simply explain it this way, that in Paul's consideration of who he, he might send from Rome to Philippi, there was no one available to Paul who was as genuinely, truly, or sincerely concerned for the church's welfare as Timothy was and would be, right? Timothy didn't have other agendas, personal agendas, that would detract from the one agenda that he should have, which would be the agenda of Jesus and the agenda to care for and minister and help the people of God and particularly this church. That he would just be there for them and not there for some other motive or reason. Right? But then Paul adds this. In verse 21, if you're following along, after he says, I have no one like Timothy who have genuine concern for your welfare. He says in 21, for they all seek, seek, it means strive for, aim at, desire. They all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. That's a heavy statement. That is a heavy statement. Let me give it to you in a different translation. All the others are looking out for their own interest. They are not looking out for the interest of Jesus Christ. And of course, beloved, the last thing Philippi needed was another person looking out for their own interest, (laughs) which is true of some of those at Philippi, because Paul addresses that very matter. They have selfish ambition, vain conceit, grumbling, disputing. Right? I don't need to send another one. That'll just make matters worse. 
But who is the all that he makes reference to here? So again, there's differences of uh, understanding. But the all, I think, is best understood just with a normal, natural reading, without trying to do gymnastics with it, is best understood as, it's, and again, some say, oh, it's just a general statement in general. Or he's, he's uh, using hyperbole, he's exaggerating. No, I, I, that's just not the natural way to read it. I think it is best understood as being restricted, though, to other Christian co-workers in Rome who might have been available to be sent by Paul to Philippi, but were, as John Calvin says when commenting on this passage, so warm in pursuing their own interest that they were cold in the work of the Lord. One scholar who takes the same position that the all is a reference to those other Christian co-workers there in Rome that could have been sent by Paul to Philippi as his messenger, but were looking out for their own interest, not for the interest of Jesus Christ. He says this, We do not know the details of those who were with the apostle when he wrote these words. Presumably, his indictment, because that's what it is, it's hard. The words are hard. Does not include Luke or Aristarchus. For although they had been with him in Rome, that's why they're mentioning that. Wait a minute, weren't those guys there? Is Paul, is this, does this apply to them? Well, apparently they're, we know that they were there, but apparently we would just understand them to no longer have been there. They moved around. They came, they visited Paul, and then they would go out on missions. They would do other things. The the scholar goes on to say, Paul does not send their greetings to the Philippians, right? So in the beginning of the letter, if they were there with Paul, likely he may have sent the greetings from them as well. But he just sent greetings from him and Timothy. He goes on to say, nor in light of the following paragraph can the criticism refer to Epaphroditus. At any rate, he was the Philippians' emissary who would return to them with the letter. So just understand We'll get to this in a second, but Epaphroditus is going to return the letter. So he'll be there with them when he's reading, they're reading the letter. So he's not available for, to be sent by Paul. This was going to occur after they received the letter by Epaphroditus. Other trustworthy Christians must have been absent at the time. He goes on to say, Philippians 1.15 and 17 has made it clear, as we've covered before, that not every person preaching Christ in Rome was inspired by the highest motives. Their motives were mixed. He goes on to say, Paul states in unmistakable language the thoroughly derogatory opinion he had earlier expressed regarding those mentioned in 1.12 through 17. There were some there in Rome preaching the gospel, but had selfish ambitions. And were even looking to hurt Paul in some way by their freedom to preach the gospel. Paul never says, he never says they're not Christian, but they're messed up ones.
He goes on to say, one group of those so described proclaim Christ out of love, as we see in 112 through 17, knowing that Paul had been put in prison for the defense of the gospel. But there's that other group. And of all those who were available as messengers, he says, none was so free from self-centeredness as Timothy. Self-centeredness. Another writer concerning this issue of all the others are looking out for their own interests, he says this, it is, it is best to regard Paul as referring solely to all those around him who might conceivably have undertaken the trip to Philippi. Some of them he may have asked and they had refused him in favor of their own pursuits. Others he may have considered but not asked because of what he knew about them. And finally, another commentator adds this. There is a note of genuine sadness in Paul's statement as he acknowledges the self-centeredness of those whom he might have sent as messengers to Philippi. I mean, honestly, I think Paul would have, and again, this is speculation, but it's based on what I know of Paul and Timothy, would have wanted to retain Timothy there with him during this difficult time. There was, Timothy and him had a very special relationship. And Timothy had grown up in the Christian faith under Paul. So I could see that he would prefer to send someone else to bring the news, to help the church, to maybe, as a representative of Paul's, help them work out some of these difficulties, check in on them, on how they're doing. The letter would have already been back now. How are you responding to the letter? How are things going? Did the two ladies work it out? Do I need to step in and address that, right? But, uh, well, he's not going to send somebody there that's going to make things worse. So he will send Timothy because... There was no one else at the time. Now, the other thing I want you to notice is this. In, uh, as we look at 20 and 21, just look at it together now. I want you to see the link between the two passages. For I have no one like him. Oh, you're not going to be able to see it because it probably won't be both up there together. But okay. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Keep that. Genuinely concerned for your welfare. I have no one like him. Who's him? Timothy. Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Those two phrases are running parallel. That being, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare and not those of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure you understand what I'm saying, so let me try to explain. Oh, awesome. Thank you. You guys are awesome. He could have said something like this. Listen, for I have no one like him who will be generally concerned for your welfare. You know, for they all, the other ones that are available to me here in Rome, they seek their own interests, not the interest of others. But he says, not those of Jesus Christ. Meaning having a concern 
for the welfare of the church is parallel with having the interest of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? One writer commenting on that says, a Christian displays his preeminent devotion to the Lord Jesus by seeking the true welfare of others. And I would say, and specifically, the others here is the church. It is necessarily so, for the Lord Jesus displayed his total obedience to God by pouring himself out wholly for others, and not others in some indiscriminate way, but for his people. Now, as we consider Paul's statement about Timothy and then about other Christians, and, um, and Timothy being really here held up as a, a model for us, I, I just think about our default orientation, which is to be self-centered. It is to be seeking or striving for, aiming at or desiring our own interest, which regularly conflict with the interest of Christ. We are, as we have joked in my family, because there's a gentleman who's a comedian who refers to people in this way, but it, it's fitting for all of us. We are, by nature, me monsters. Me monsters. The world revolves around us. Life is about us. That generally is our natural default. But then the gospel breaks in. Christ breaks in and begins to reorient us, to transform us by his grace, by his word, through his spirit, so that we begin to identify more and more with the, with the statement that Paul would make in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ. Our interests become more and more the interest of Jesus Christ. Our orientation changes from self and inward to others and outward, and especially our interests are elevated to become the same interest that Jesus has, which would certainly include his precious people that he gave his life for, who he spilt his blood for. I wonder, and this is for you to ask yourself, and not once, but again and again, are your interests the interest of Jesus Christ? Any that are not, what should you do with those? Hold on to them? 
try to twist them until you've convinced yourself that really is the interest of Jesus Christ. Or discard them for the worthless things that they are. Because Timothy's interests were the interest of Jesus Christ, he would actually be genuinely, sincerely concerned for the welfare of God's people and would do all that he could to bring about their good because his interests aligned with the interest of Jesus Christ because he had made Christ's interests his own. And that is what we must be doing on a regular basis. Epaphroditus. Another godly example for us to consider. So in verse 25, Paul writes that he thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. That is, Paul thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus back since it was the church that originally sent Epaphroditus as their messenger to come and minister to Paul there in Rome, as we see in verse 25. And as I said, Epaphroditus would carry the letter back to his church in Philippi, and he would be there with them when they read the letter. Okay? So he's, he's, here it is, and now Paul's giving an explanation for that's why he's standing there before you. So we can draw the conclusion from what Paul says, though, that it, it wasn't Epaphroditus' decision. Right? It wasn't Epaphroditus' decision to go back to Philippi, but rather, clearly, it was Paul's. So what's up? Why did Paul make that call? Why did he make that decision? And he's making sure they know that it was his decision to send him back. Well, Paul explains what's up. And what he says makes it clear to the church that Epaphroditus isn't returning for some selfish or self-centered reason. Or because he grew weary in discharging his task that was given to him by the church in Philippi to minister and care for Paul. In fact, it could have even been that they, we don't know, but they could have certainly have given him instructions that he were to stay with Paul until the outcome of the trial. But Paul's sending him back before that has occurred. And it was not because Paul was not wanting him around. Clearly we see that due to some deficiency in Epaphroditus. Like, you know, the guy is just not that helpful. Or he really started to bother me. None of that. In fact, beloved, Paul insists that Epaphroditus should be welcomed back with great joy. And that the church should honor men like him. But why does Paul insist on those things? Well, beginning in verse 26, listen. Just Again, you learn about the character of these men as Paul lays out their travel plans. But it's intentional. 
Paul could have left some of this out and just told them what was going to take place, but he includes it. And it makes sense in light of everything that he's been saying and everything that he's hoping for this church in Philippi. These are, again, examples, models of Christ-likeness that he's putting on display for them to see. So, beginning in verse 26, Paul mentions Epaphroditus longing for his brothers and sisters in Philippi. Uh, that's a way to referring to his deep affection that he, that he had for them. Epaphroditus, this deep affection for his church. And he also, flowing out of that deep affection, he mentions his distress. Epaphroditus is distress. Over what? <laughs> well, he misses his shower at home. You know? I mean, there could be a lot of things. I know there are a lot of things that distress me when I'm away from home but they're more of pleasures for me that I miss or lack. But it's different in this case with Epaphroditus. Watch. It's over knowing that the church had heard he was ill. That's what the text says. He's distressed over knowing that the church heard he was ill. Hold that thought. The word distress that Paul uses here, the Greek word that's translated distressed, it's the same word used of the Lord's deep trouble of spirit in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember that occasion? He's getting ready to go to the cross. And the scriptures tell us that our Lord was distressed. Remember, he's dripping drops, sweating drops of blood due to this distress. This is not like your normal... It's intense, right? That's what there were. It denotes a strong, very strong anxiety or worry. It's intense. That's the word used. Okay? Next. How did the church in Philippi hear about Epaphroditus' illness? Remember, they sent him. It's pretty far away. Pretty long distance between Philippi and where Paul would have been in Rome. Well, we, we can't say for sure because we, we just don't know. The text doesn't tell us. We don't know, but they do know. But here's a scenario so that you can kind of put the pieces together in your head. One writer says this, given that Epaphroditus was probably carrying a considerable sum of money, remember, a big part of why they sent him there was not only to, to be a help to Paul, to minister to Paul, to find out how he was doing, but it was also, and they had done this before, to provide a monetary gift to Paul, to sustain him, Okay? It's not like he can collect unemployment checks and stuff like that. This is how it worked. If the people didn't support one another, they were in trouble. And Paul's not doing much work from his house imprisonment. So they sent this money. So, in light of the fact that, that Paphroditus is carrying this considerable sum of money, it's equally unlikely that he was traveling alone. Okay? Again, that would probably not be wise. So you send, some, you send some muscle with them, or at least just some guys that can watch out for them, you know, and help in case something goes wrong. So the most promising scenario, therefore, is the one that sees him as having taken ill on the way to Rome with one of his traveling companions then returning to Philippi at some point with that news, which would then explain 
how Epaphroditus knew they knew. Otherwise, because they don't have cell phones and no email and none of that stuff, right? So not only do they know, but Epaphroditus knows that they know. And it just goes on to say, while another or others maybe stayed with him as he continued on his way to Rome. So maybe someone went back, and we don't know why they would have gone back, but it's a possible scenario. It certainly makes sense. But, but here's something to consider, okay? <laughs> Epaphrodite was distressed or worried over the fact that his brothers and sisters were living with the knowledge that he had fallen ill and that they would not have known that he was okay because he is okay now. For that matter, they don't know if maybe it grew worse. He is worried basically then, about their worry over him. That's what he's distressed about. He was anxious that they would have been anxious over his state of health. What does that say about that man? Well, here, let me illustrate it in case it's not obvious. It, it, certainly, it certainly screams he cares about others. He is considerate of others. And, and let me demonstrate to you a, a, a way that you'll know for sure the difference here between Epaphroditus and someone who is more self-centered and selfish and focused only on them. It is those inconsiderate and selfish children who you send out for the night, right, as they get older, and they don't come home on time. I'm speaking not from personal experience per se. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just speaking because it's no doubt something many of you have maybe experienced. Or you've heard someone experiencing. And it may look a little different, but the principles apply still in different scenarios. And you're trying to get a hold of them. And you're trying to, and you are under you are distressed as a parent. And as the time goes by, it just, you start bleeding drops of blood or sweating drops of blood in a way, metaphorically. Your stomach gets sick, yeah? All this stuff. Especially if it's a daughter. Uh... And they come home, and you explain to them how upset you were, right? That they didn't inform you about whatever had occurred that kept them from arriving home on time and what their delay was, and they blow you off like, what is your problem? You ever had that happen? It's terrible, right? And you know what that's about. You little selfish, self-centered monster. I am dying a thousand deaths, and you couldn't pick up the phone or pull out your cell or whatever it would be to notify me? Do you even care about me? You see? Not so with Epaphroditus. Unfortunately, he didn't have modern-day communication abilities. And so he's, he's worked up. But it, 
it demonstrates that uh, his care for others, his thoughtfulness of others, his focus, his love for others. One writer said, this worry was provoked in Epaphroditus by the simple fact that they were anxious about him. And he goes on to say, far from feeling gratified that he was the center of attention back at home, it drove him to mental torment. Because that's really what the word means, that he was being a worry. He didn't want to be a burden. That's, that's different than most people. <laughs> they don't mind being a burden. They don't care how their actions, per se, hurt others or impact others or weigh others down. They're not really concerned. You know why? Because they don't have the interest of Jesus Christ. But Epaphroditus, by God's grace, had been transformed. His orientation was different now. He's a model of Christ-likeness. And concerning Epaphroditus' illness, Paul informs them, indeed, he was ill. (laughs) He was. In fact, he was near to death. He was at death's door. Wow. But that God had mercy on him. He healed him. And not only on him did God have mercy, but Paul adds, man, that was also mercy to me lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. You know, uh, even when we think about this, we might think, ah, why would they have been so, uh, why might have those in Philippi possibly gotten so worked up? Yeah, they heard he was sick. What's the big deal? Well, okay, the big deal is, uh, even when Paul says here God had mercy on him, we probably think, yeah, It's pretty significant because we're used to modern medical science. But back in the day, in antiquity, um, if someone got sick, they might die. They might die. So it was a serious concern. And from things that we now can eradicate or cure or even keep from happening, but any sickness for them back then, yeah, they might die. But God had mercy. God healed him. So now back to 29 and 30. In light of all that, let's read 29 and 30. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. Yeah, I'm sending him back maybe sooner than you thought he should come back, but I chose to send him back. And in his, when he comes back, I just explained to you, this guy, he is, he is a, He is a Christian man through and through, a fellow brother, a fellow worker, my fellow soldier. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Listen, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, that last line, I just want to say something so you don't, You're not confused about it. That last statement is not meant to be negative at all. That is not a slam. It's not with sarcasm. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. It's not that. Let me read another translation that might be 
more helpful. For he risked his life for the work of Christ, and he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. That's why they, that's why they sent Epaphrodite. They can't all make the trip to Rome. But they sent Epaphroditus as their representative to minister, to care for, to help Paul along. And by so doing, fulfilled what the church in Philippi could not do because they were not there. And in the process, he risked his very life to bring about that end. One commentator paraphrases verse 30 this way, Epaphroditus was prepared to hazard his life in his eagerness to discharge full that service which you would have liked to render but could not because you were not with me. Another commenting on the man Epaphroditus and what we learn of him here says this, Epaphroditus was a man of obvious devotion, faithfulness, and self-sacrifice. He put the interest of others, which is exactly what Paul has been calling upon the church in Philippi to do. He put the interest of others before himself and so modeled the mind of Christ that Paul had just described in Philippians 2, 4, and 5. And following. He labored on Paul's behalf until his own health broke. And even when he was sick, Epaphroditus took no thought of himself. Again, that's not the natural response. That's a transformation of God's grace in his life. He took no thought of himself. I mean, beloved, just... Again, let the word of God sit in your heart and mind and let the spirit of God do what he will with it as we think about these men. But honestly, in truthfulness, maybe many of us would have, would have pulled out way before that. Hey, I'm sick. I'm out. My hip hurts. I got a callus. I mean, honestly, the excuses I hear for people just not even showing up to church are often ridiculous. I'm on my deathbed, Jeremy. Okay, don't come in. (laughs) I'm still coming! That's what Tony would say. I'll be there. I know you will, Tony. You are crazy in a good way. Epaphroditus took no thought of himself. Rather, he was distressed because his church had heard of his illness, and he, he didn't want them to worry. Timothy and Epaphroditus, you know, that's two men here in this short travel log, if you will, but men that we can hopefully learn from and, uh, and grow from as we consider their Christ-like examples. And it's just thinking how the gospel just really does change everything. When you consider Timothy, 
The reason he, had, he could be the man that would be genuinely concerned for others, and specifically the people of God there in Philippi, who were hurting. Not only did they have this struggle within their, their ranks, but, but they also had oppression, some special oppression, persecution occurring from the outside. They needed someone that could come along on Paul's behalf and be there for them. Right? Without saying, okay, now, wait a minute, what about me? Be there for them, right? Well, what makes that transformation occur in someone? It's, it's the work of Christ in their life. It's, it's the gospel thought on and meditated on. It's the example of our Lord who set aside all for the sake of us. And when you think about a guy like Epaphroditus who would, who would risk his life, beloved, for the sake of Paul, not, not just for anybody, but for the sake of Paul, who was an apostle of Christ, and for the sake of Paul's mission, which was making Christ known and planting churches, why would he do that? Because through his transformation, through his salvation, that had raised to a level of such great importance that he would even be willing, if necessary, to die to advance Christ's cause. I wonder about us. I wonder where we're at in that spectrum. I pray that the Lord will do a work in our hearts. Father in heaven, oh may, oh may we be able to say that our interests are those of Jesus Christ. Oh, may we be able to say truthfully and honestly and live out our lives in a way that demonstrates that Christ is of the greatest importance. So great that there is no sacrifice that we should not be willing to make for the purposes of advancing our great Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, for advancing his cause, for making him known for aligning ourselves with his will because he is so great and his gospel is glorious. Father, work in our hearts and minds because there's so many competing factors at hand, our own war going inside of our own hearts and our fallen flesh that consistently compete for our interest, consistently compete to push out the interest of Christ. consistently lie to us and tell us Christ is not that important, is he? Indeed he is. Indeed he is. Do your work in us, Father. May we become more and more like our humble Christ. 
who laid down his life willingly for us that we now might live our lives in newness for him. Amen.